Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I am going to share with you a little chat that I had with a wonderful mandolin player and fiddle player called Simon Mayer. And Simon is an Englishman, and I met him, oh, I don't know exactly how long ago it was, at least 10 or 12, I don't know, it may have been, it could have been 15 years ago, when he did a show in Atlanta at the Red Light Cafe. And word got around among the mandolin players around Atlanta that we need to go see this guy. So we all you know, filled up the front table and went and saw Simon play. And he was there with his um, fellow musician and mando bass player, Hillary James. And we were just blown away by what a great mandolin player, entertainer, joke teller. It was just a, a wonderful show. And during the break, he sat at our table and let us try out his mandolin. And so I, I, I've remembered Simon, and, and I've seen him, you know, his name come up here and there, but I haven't seen him since. And I thought, I'm going to contact him and see if he would come on to the show and tell us a little bit about mandolin playing on his side of the big pond. So let's go to the interview with Simon Mayer. Simon Mayer. And Simon, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Reading in Berkshire in England, which is about 40 miles west of London. Okay. All right. Yeah. Reading is on the River Thames, which is the same river that runs through London. We've heard of that river. (laughs) Uh, Is that the one where where London Bridge fell down? That's the one. All right. (laughs) Anyway, so I'm here with Simon Mayer. Mandolin player, fiddle player, entertainer, I might even add comedian. Certainly, oh. uh, he, he knows a good joke. I, I first came across you, Simon, uh, when word got around Atlanta that there was this guy going to perform at the Red Light Cafe in Atlanta. I, I, I remember the gig very well, actually. Well, Probably because it's the only time we've ever played in Atlanta. Is it really? Well, I yeah, I think so. Yeah, I didn't know that, and we didn't know that. But you know, word gets around among the musicians. So, myself and a couple of my mandolin playing buddies, we all loaded up to come down and see this quote unquote Celtic mandolin player. We didn't. None of us, I think, had ever heard you play or heard any of your recording. We didn't know anything about you. And we, of course, we occupied the front table and we sat there with our jaw, you know, on the table, just like, holy cow, this guy can really play. And you were there with Hillary James. And it's, it was interesting because, uh, it's, it's pretty rare to see one, see someone playing a, a Mando bass and, <laughs> you know, very few people even know what a mando bass is, but I think she had her mando bass there that night. Anyway, you played, and when you took your first break, you very kindly came and sat at our table and talked with us and uh, handed your mandolin around. We all tried your mandolin, 
and it was really fun to meet you. And I came away that night thinking, you know, musicians all over the world are kind of similar, even though we might play a little differently. So uh, tell us what you recall of playing in Atlanta. Well, actually, I think I'm pretty sure that I remember coming over to your table and um, and 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 chatting to you. Um, although it's it's many years ago now, isn't it? Probably about ten, twelve years ago, something like that. Yeah, I I think so. I was trying to determine what year it was. I bought a CD. You had a CD called New Celtic Mandolin, and I yes, I do. Yeah, I picked that up, and I think that was dated ninety eight or ninety nine. And you also had an instruction book of you know tabs and notation for all the tunes on that cd and i picked that up thinking wow i'm gonna go home and start practicing i'm gonna be just like simon mayer <laughs> it, it didn't it didn't work out quite like that but uh well it doesn't work out for me playing bluegrass so i think it's a yeah. cult- cultural thing across the atlantic you know yeah well you know first of all um, let, let me apologize uh for that little spat we had back in 1776 i know that whole thing with george iii uh, but there you know here in america we were we were Spanish colonies and French colonies and yeah. and Dutch, but ultimately we were populated by the English. And you know, we're sorry about that little thing back. In well, the- I think I think we've just about forgiven you. Well, I'm not <laughs> sure. You know, we have, or at least some of us. But yeah. Anyway, well, I, re- I remember that. I remember that gig quite well. I I remember it was a very intimate gig, and I also remember that uh, we were playing a very tiny guitar that we had with us a parlor sized santa cruz and the reason i remember that is because um when we used to tour the states quite regularly um this is going back 10 15 years or so um, what we usually did was to travel over without a guitar buy a guitar when we were over there and bring it back to the uk with us because guitars in the states good good quality guitars uh, were much cheaper in the States. So that is what we usually did. And we would sell the guitar when we came back to England. Now, what usually happened is that we would find a guitar in the States. And when we got back to England, we really couldn't bring ourselves to part with it because it was just so nice. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so um, quite inadvertently, we've built up this collection of really quite nice steel string acoustic guitars, a lot of which we brought back from the States. And on that particular occasion... It was a parlor size Santa Cruz, which um, Hillary had found in Elderly Instruments about a week before we flew down to Atlanta. We were in Lansing, Michigan, and we wandered into Elderly Instruments. Now, I don't know whether you've ever been to that shop. It's a very, very dangerous shop. Uh, I, I know the type, and I do know the elderly folks very well because yeah. they used to peddle my books for me. But okay. I, I've never visited there. Well, it's, um, I don't know, I suppose it's, uh, well, it's one of the biggest um, acoustic instrument shops in the States. And um, you go in there at your peril because you will find something that you fall in love with. And on this occasion, Hillary, uh, who is very fond of parlor-sized guitars, picked up uh, a parlor-sized Santa Cruz. Have you seen this? She said, calling me across the shop. And I played it. And I played it. And it, it didn't sound particularly good to me. And then I noticed that there was exactly the same model in the racks, a, a different um, example of exactly the same model Santa Cruz. And I picked the other one up, and it sounded fantastic. And 
I, I, I couldn't believe how, how much better the other one sounded. They were both second-hand, and the cheaper one was the one that sounded much better. So we bought that, and we used it on the rest of that tour in the, in the United States and uh, brought it back to England with us and, as usual, couldn't bring ourselves to sell it because we'd fallen in love with it. Well, that, that brings up a really good point about the individuality of wooden instruments because, you know, I see a lot of threads on forums where they're beginners saying, what do you think of the XYZ Model B205 or whatever? Yeah. And, and I always tell people, you go there, pick them up. If you have 10 of the same thing, you're going to have 10 different instruments. Try them all and pick the one you like. Yeah, you know, even with modern production methods and, um, I mean, Santa Cruz, I've, I've, I've never actually been to the factory, but I imagine they've got all the gear and, they, you know, it's a, I imagine it's a very streamlined production place. But even with that, it's, you know, you, you can't escape that individual piece of wood or pieces of wood that the instrument is made out of. And, um, and uh, I think a good luthier can bring the best out of a mediocre piece of wood, but it's only when you get absolutely top quality wood and uh, very skilled people making the instrument that, that, that you get a truly great instrument. Uh, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head there. The other side of that coin is if you had two supposedly identical instruments hanging on the rack made by the same maker and you like mandolin A and someone else may like mandolin B because it's, it's subjective too. Some people are looking for different sounds and their, yeah. you know, their own playing style. So it doesn't mean that you know only one out of ten instruments is going to be a, a really good one. Uh, it might be that you know, one out you of like ten this is, one is, and I like is, that one. Yeah, sure. And and in fact, um, a lot of bluegrass players that I've met go for a very um, what I call poppy sound, uh, maybe a little bit short on 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 sustain, but but right. with a huge, but with a huge initial burst of energy. Uh, that that is great for chop chords, um, gives you a lot of clarity between notes when you're picking solos out. Personally, I go for an instrument with massive amounts of sustain. For me, the more sustain, the better for my playing style. But as you say, I'm not everybody. Well, thank, thankfully, there are, there are a lot of varieties of instruments out there. Uh, it, infinite varieties and infinite varieties of players and their preferences, but you get a really good sound. And one of the things I noticed the night that I watched you live in person was it, it seemed to me that you had the knack for letting the instrument speak rather than, than trying to force it. Or, you know, I could tell you weren't over driving it or under driving it. It seemed like you found, a way to let that instrument really do its thing. And it just, I've seen that in the mandolin orchestra. I played in the Atlanta mandolin society orchestra for a while. And, you know, I heard that uh, with certain players who knew how yeah. to position the instrument so that the back would vibrate and not be damped by the, you know, by the torso and so on. But I just really noticed that about you. You really, it seemed like the instrument was doing the talking. Yeah, and um, that's exactly what I try to do. Um, I'm 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 not a hard player like 
uh, like, of like me, <laughs> like me. I beat uh, I beat the snot out of the thing. Oh right. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, at times, at times, uh, you know, uh, when you play a lot uh, of bar gigs, you know. sure, that's 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 great for certain styles. I mean, you know, I mean, much as I love Bill Monroe, I could never in a million years vaguely emulate his style. Um, but I I love listening to those old Bill Monroe recordings. Well, I, I was uh, one of those. But I mean, he was a he was a hard and heavy player, wasn't he? You know, I don't know because I never heard him standing, you know, three feet away from him. I've well, always uh, seen him on a stage over a PA, so I don't know physically. He, but I would say this: he was he seemed to be a, a super physical guy in yeah. many ways. So it did seem like he was, but it may have only. I may be incorrect. I mean, I don't know that he was brutalizing the instrument if you look at the top of the instrument it was pretty pretty beat up so i, I think yeah, there was I've a degree heard, of whacking going on there i never saw bill monroe play live but i have spoken to people who had and they've told me that um basically you could hear him acoustically from the other side of the street really easily yeah yeah and i and i, I know for a fact yeah. that that was true with his singing as well i mean i'm sure you know, he uh Anyway, it seems like over time, the especially with air travel, where musicians can go around the world and, you know, we can hear you in Atlanta and you can hear somebody from, you know, Oklahoma over there. Yeah. And with the Internet, it seems like there's a blurring of the lines because, you know, if you were growing up in the 1940s and you got interested in mandolin and you were hearing Bill Monroe and his imitators, it wasn't likely you were going to hear a Simon Mayer. Um, but today, everything's blurring. You know, if you listen to Alison Krauss, which a lot of people call bluegrass, it's quite different than Bill Monroe. And Oh, yes, totally. Um, so there are but, these overlapping circles. Um, well, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want to stress to the listeners of this podcast who are learning to play bluegrass or already play bluegrass why it's it's valuable to explore outside of your own little your own little world of Flat and Scruggs and Bill Monroe and Ralph Stanley and and peer out into the outer world and look into things like what you do. Well, yeah, I mean the world is becoming a little village, isn't it, really? And um we I, I think it's a great thing that we can all explore different musical styles so easily. Um, I mean, a lot of people I know don't watch television anymore. They just explore YouTube, see what's out there. You know? Right. I'm one of those. And, I, I yeah. chucked my TV about six years ago. Yeah, I know a few people like you. And um, I, I think it's a really great thing that we we can, I mean, particularly with YouTube now, we can not only hear these people play in styles that are, alien to our own, uh, but we can also watch how they do it. We can also watch how their fingers move. We can also, you, you know, you, you get stuff on YouTube, you can study people's different techniques uh, really quite closely and choose who you might want to emulate, who you might want to be most heavily influenced by. Well, let, let me ask you a question. Do you think there is any fear, or do you have any fear that this blending uh, and borrowing from one one area of music to another will just eventually eliminate styles altogether because you know it used to be that you could go down to 
New Orleans and hear New Orleans music. You could go to Chicago and hear Chicago music. And is it just going to become one all big brownish gray blob? It's a danger, isn't it? I, I think mean, so. It, I think so. It, it, it's true. Uh, um, I mean, just to go outside the field of music for a moment, it's true of language. Um, in that many um, Americanisms are entering the British English lang language. Well, we apologize um, for that. The, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> it is the I'm, king's. Listen, listen. <laughs> I, I'm observing. I'm not complaining. You know, this, this, this is an observation, not a complaint. Oh, well, I'm uh, just kidding but, about that. But yeah, sure, I know. But because of the um, American dominance of software, we get in American spellings coming over. Um, I mean, for example, the word center, I don't know whether you know, but in Britain we spell center the French way, C-E-N-T-R-E. -E. Right, in right, okay. In, I, and I think they do that in Canada, I'm not sure. But in the United States you spell it C-E-N-T-E-R. Now that E-R ending is becoming ever more common over here now. Um, so it's it's happening with language in, in, in the, the the global English language is kind of uh, getting one norm rather than um, lots of different var variations of it. Right. As, well, do you worry that as, there's... As used to be, and with music, um, I mean, we have okay. lots, of, lots, lots of people over here who play in a bluegrass style. You know, um, whether they do it as well as the Americans is open to a question, but, I mean, there's a thriving bluegrass scene over here and some exceptionally good players... Um, now, whether they'd be able to play in that style so well if they didn't have the internet and if air travel weren't so cheap and if, as we were just saying, the world wasn't wasn't shrinking, I don't know. Um, well, yes, I, I, I suppose very what... interesting question. Yeah, I'm just... I, I wonder, is it even possible from this day forward for there to emerge a Ralph Stanley, a Bill Monroe, you know, someone who formed your music in, in a lot more isolation. Uh, you mean, what do you mean on my side of the Atlantic? Well, just, just in general, I mean, are we getting to the point where there can't be that, um, you know, sort of isolated style? I think the answer to that is probably yes. Um, I mean, the, you know, maybe there are pockets of the Appalachian mountains that, uh, that are sufficiently, culturally cut off that you're still going to get people playing um, um, old-time music uninfluenced by the outside world? I don't know. You'd, you'd, you'd probably know the answer to that question better than me, being American. Well, um, yeah. I think, I, think, I think certainly with folk music, folk music forms on this side of the Atlantic, um, you know, if you, if you listen to old field recordings of traditional singers from early in the last century or even the late 19th century, some exist, um, they sing in a style and indeed with an accent that has pretty much disappeared. And, any, and, and anyone who does it over here is, is um, what we would call a revivalist singer rather than a traditional singer, if you understand the difference. Yeah, around here, uh, you know, I think the, the street term is a throwback. Like if I walk the streets of America's Georgia and I'm about... I think it's eight or nine miles down to Plains, Georgia, where Jimmy Carter, former president Jimmy Carter, 
was born and raised. That's the area of the world I live in. And if I walk down to the coffee shop and just start up a conversation with various people in the shop, I'm not going to hear a lot of Southern accents. It's like people are absorbing kind of this um, homogenized, yeah. blob yeah. American voice, but you do run into people and it's it, mostly older people who retain, you know, their older um, accents and things like that. But I don't know. We're let's, let's turn the corner here and we got into instruments a little bit. Yeah. Tell me, I remember you graciously handed over your mandolin and David Ellis was sitting there and he picked on it a little bit. And then he handed it over to my friend, Tony Duck, who played it. And I tried it out and we hand it back to you. And it seems to me like, I remember it was a great sounding, seems like it was an A style mandolin. And I think it was built by a guy named Jonathan Mann. Is, is that true? And do I remember that right? Uh, no, you remember it wrong. Okay. Uh, no, uh, my, the 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 mandolins that I've always used since 1983 have been made by Mike Vanden. Vanden. V- okay. Yeah, V V A N D E N, who is originally from Manchester in England. Okay. Uh, but, but for many years has lived in a very remote part of Scotland. Well. Is that uh, I have over here your website pulled up, and 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 uh, Simon's website, by the way, is mandolin.co.uk.co.uk, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes uh, page. On uh, the the very first thing I see is a, a picture of you uh, contemplating <laughs> something, <laughs> and you're holding the mandolin. Is that? Um, the oh, what? What did you? Who built that? The Vanden. That Vanden, yeah, it's, it's okay. spelled V V A N D E N. Okay, Van, and Vanden. is is that the Vanden mandolin you're holding in that photo? That's not the one I would have had with me when I met you. Okay, but it's it's a similar one. The one in the photograph is slightly longer scale than the one I was playing in Atlanta, but it's a, it's a similar thing. Yeah. It's 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 basically an A five. Uh, Teardrop shape, F holes. Um, I'm, I'm not terribly keen on overhaul mandolins. Uh, I'm a, for me, it has to be F holes. Um, and um, yeah, I have I have four of his instruments and well, four of his mandolins, and I've got a mandola and a mando cello which I wouldn't have had with me in Atlanta because it's just uh, when, when we're on tour, it's just too much to carry around. Right. So the so the the mandola and the mandocello they don't get out much actually, but they've been used a lot on the recordings that I've made. Well, uh, before we get too far away from this, uh, is that the best website? Uh, Mandolin.co.uk. Sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, one of, one of the things that that fascinated me when I saw you play was that mando bass and. Being in the mandolin orchestra at that time, I I knew what a mandolin, mandola, mandocello, mandobass, and so on. And for for a while, I played mandola and I switched to mandocello. Um, but we don't see those much in the bluegrass world. But you know, the mandolin players today are very aware of them. Can you kind of give a little rundown of some of the instruments that that you you, you play a lot with Hillary James? 
Yeah, she was he'll, playing the now, bass. Yeah, the, the the mando bass actually belongs to Hillary. I'm I'm not really a bass player, and um, it, there's a funny story there actually because uh, I think it would have been in about 1998 or there was 97 maybe. We were forming a man. We were trying to form a mandolin quartet, and uh, Hillary was going to be playing double bass. We'd got another mandolin player lined up, and another guy who was going to be playing guitar and some mando cello. And um, a week before the very first rehearsal of that quartet, we found a bass mandolin, and we this was like manna from heaven. We couldn't believe our luck. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it was actually made in England, and for many years, it, I, th I'm, I think I'm writing saying it was the only one in England. Uh, that, that mando bass was made by a chap called Robin Greenwood, who lives in the town of Bournemouth, which is on the south coast of England. And we, we actually found it second-hand in a music shop, and Hillary had been in the United States at a music conference, and I was due to pick her up at... Uh, Gatwick Airport near London and uh, somebody had told me that there was a Mando base for sale in this music shop just about three miles from Gatwick Airport and somebody in the United States had told her, indi completely independently had told her that it was for sale so when I picked her up at Gatwick the first words we said to each other almost simultaneously <laughs> were Mando base <laughs> <laughs> and I'd, I'd taken the precaution of uh, making sure there was enough money in the bank account to buy it if we liked it. And we went straight down there and and uh, and, and got it. And it, it's turned into Hillary's calling card ever since. And the reason she's been so delighted with it over the years is that she tried some Gibson Mando bases on visits to the United States. Right. And they're not that they're not that common in the States, but they are out there. And um, she found them horrendously difficult to play. You know, you really do need hands like, um, uh, we, we would say, a mole grip. I don't know whether you use that word. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It... Well, I, I think you'd probably call it a wrench. Would you? Oh, right. Okay, okay. In, in American English. Uh, anyway, you, you, would need, you would need to be as strong as a gorilla <laughs> to play these things. And, um, right. and Hillary's not a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when, when she found this Mando bass, this English one, it was just so much easier to play. It was al almost as, the action was almost as fast as playing an electric bass guitar. So she was really delighted with it. And it, it as an instrument, it spoke very, very easily. And uh, it, it was just so much more suited to her than, than the Gibson ones. And so it's, it's turned into her calling card, really. She uses it on all publicity photos. It goes with her wherever she goes nowadays. It takes two seats on an aircraft when we travel, which is <laughs> a little bit inconvenient, but, right. safe, but safer than uh, putting it in the hold. And, uh, yeah, so it's uh, the joke here is that she plays it, I carry it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's talk for a minute about... Going to kind of, I'm going to shift gears here again. I I, I would like to sort of uh, peel back the onion a little bit and go back to how you started. The you know when you very the first time you began to play because I I watched one of the interviews on your on, I don't know if it's a, I don't know where I got this um, about you talking about 
learning to play before you learn to read music, standard music notation. Someone was yeah. asking you if you had classical training and so on. And, and it sounded to me like you learned to play and then you taught yourself how to read and understand music notation. Just just take us way on back to the first time Simon okay, well, got his hands on an instrument. Well, I'd, um, I, I first got my hands on an instrument when I was about nine and I'd been going mad for a guitar and my parents couldn't afford a guitar, so they bought me a ukulele. <laughs> and uh, two years later, when I proved that it wasn't a passing fad, they bought me a, an awful guitar. I mean, it was like playing a cheese grater. It was horrible. Right. But, but I got my first guitar when I was probably about 10 or 11. And I didn't really do much on it. I, I learned to strum a few chords. But I didn't really get excited about music until I was in my mid-teens, which is quite late, really. And um, I, uh, almost at the same time, I heard um, a musician called Dave Swarbrick. I don't know whether you're familiar with him no, in the I'm, States, are you? I'm not at all. Well, Dave Swarbrick, he's, he's, he's quite well known here in, uh, in traditional music circles. And he sadly died a few months ago. Um, I was very sad. And he, he played fiddle and mandolin in a group called Fairport Convention, which, uh, which was one of the major folk rock groups over here, and still is, in fact. They're, they're still going. And uh, he was a, a big influence in my teens. When I first heard him play, I, it was just such an exciting sound. And I took up the fiddle and the mandolin at, at the same time. And al almost at the same time as that, I heard... Uh, a recording of some classical music on the mandolin by um, a player called Hugo Dalton. Uh, again, he's he's been dead for quite a few years now. And he was an English player, uh, played in the, I suppose you would say, in the Italian style. He played a round back mandolin. He played classical music. Yeah, I don't, and, I, yeah. I'm not familiar with him, but I do recall back in David Grisman's Madeline World News magazine, there being either an article or some mention about been, him. Yeah, uh, because I think David Grisman and I, I think I'm right in saying this, David Grisman and Mike Marshall on a visit to London sought him out Okay, and and did an article on him for the magazine. I yeah. don't know any more details than, than that, but Mike, Mike, Mike Marshall was telling me about um, a very memorable visit to his house once when I, when I met Mike. Anyway, um, I'd, I'd heard this, these two very different styles. Dave, Dave, Dave Swarbrick um, played in a, a played traditional music and um, with the in incredible fire, whether on the fiddle or, or the mandolin, and and he he played an old Gibson A model, and and then Hugo Dalton played an Emberger, an Italian roundback, uh, in a very very different style, and um, without really knowing what kind of style I was going to evolve into. I just knew that I had to get hold of a mandolin and start playing it. And I got hold of a fiddle as well. And my mandolin playing improved much more quickly than my fiddle playing because the fiddle is a, <laughs> it's just a phenomenally diff difficult instrument. Well, for me, I I've heard you uh, on, on YouTube play the fiddle and <laughs> you play it really well. Me, I will not take it outside of the house. I, I cannot punish humanity with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, my, my mandolin playing improved much more quickly 
um, because I, I already knew how to use a plectrum because of the guitar playing. So was this all self-taught, or were you, did you have all, lessons? No, it was all self-taught. There were no mandolin teachers. Uh, the mandolin wasn't recognized as a musical instrument. When I was at school, the guitar wasn't recognized as a musical yeah, instrument. Yeah, that's changing a little bit now. Yeah, that's that's changing now. But but I think in North America, you've always had a more open attitude towards these things. And, um, you know, the I mean, players like um, Julian Bream had a hell of a job getting, um, getting the guitar accepted in music colleges here. So anyway, I taught myself um, from my... I was the age of about 16, and I started looking at music notation, and then later on, and but really I was playing by ear. And then later on in my, um, how old would I be, my early to mid-20s, uh, I, I, I was starting to get involved in uh, music for children, and we, Hilary James and I were writing a lot of children's songs. We started getting work at the BBC, writing children's songs for radio and television programmes. And I started getting offered work as a session musician mm -hmm. for sessions at the BBC. And I was in these sessions with people who had been through music college and people for whom reading music notation was no more difficult than reading a newspaper. So I, I was in at the deep end with these people and I had to learn to read music quickly, which I did. You know, I... I acquainted myself with it very quickly. Yeah. And I, I must say, I'm, I'm still not as fluent a reader as someone who's had a very formal training and been through music college, but I'm, I'm quite comfortable with it now. Yeah, I, for, for me, I learned to read treble clef in, in school band. I was a French horn player, and they oh, would right. put the music in front of you. You know, this is like in the 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grades of, you know... I was tooting a horn, and then when I graduated, I had got the the bluegrass and the banjo bug, and I couldn't find any application in the real world, in my world, to play a French horn. And when I went to playing banjo, everything was tablature, and I just kind of let it all go. But yeah. many years later, when I got involved in the Atlanta Mandolin Orchestra, they put the music down in front of me, and I said, hey, I know how to read this stuff. And it was very yeah. helpful. And I, I always suggest to my students who are <clears throat> very tablature-oriented to at least learn to decode the basics of standard music notation so they can get the old Cole's 1000 Fiddle Tunes book or that Ryan's Mammoth Collection and make sense of those old tunes that are only written in standard. Well, that's, that's good advice. I mean, tablature is very useful, but... Uh, you don't have the whole world of music open to you if you can't read standard notation. Yeah, I had a student one time, a kid taking lessons from me, and we were just working on the, the usual bluegrass basics of boiling cabbage down and, yeah. you know, old Joe Clark and some chords. And after three months or so, his grandmother brought him one time and said, uh, Mr. Brad, um, I was just curious, when are you going to teach Adam how to read music notation? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'll, I'm going to get around to that, but I just wanted to get him some, some things he could play. She said, because, you know, at church, you know, a lot of times they'll open the hymnal and it's all standard music notation, and it really does help you. There's so much music written down, and it, it was written hundreds of years ago, and you're not going to get it if you can't decode that stuff. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I'm 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 very glad that I can read standard notation, but actually, I'm 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 quite glad um, that I learned learned to play before I learned to read because it really developed my ear. Yeah. Yeah, I and guess I think, that, w- that was the point I was trying to make <laughs> to Adam's yeah. grandmother, I think. Yeah, because I, I have met um, lots of um, musicians who've, who have only had a formal training, uh, who are you know, very, very fine musicians. They can play anything that's put in front of them, but, but they couldn't play Happy Birthday without the music. Right, right. Whereas, yeah. whereas absolutely anybody I know in the kind of circles that I move in could play happy birthday without needing the sheet music. Right. Yeah. And you know, I, I talked about this in a previous podcast on improvisation about me coming out of the band school band program and not having a clue how to improvise anything because they didn't really want you to improvise. Uh, you know, but then I jumped into the bluegrass world and there is a lot of that going on. Yeah, 32 bars in, it's your turn. What do you do? Right. That's the question <laughs> I've tried to yeah. answer for myself and others. Yeah. Well, hey, let's 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 once again turn the corner. Tell me about Slim Panatella. Oh, well, this is a this is a bit of a sideline. The reason um, I ask you that is because in cruising around your website, that was the only place I heard some banjo picking. Uh yeah, well, um the current lineup of Slim Panatella is actually three quarters of our mandolin quartet, which is called the Mandolinquents. <laughs> and um, Richard Collins, who uh, plays second mandolin in the quartet, is a very fine mandolin player. But actually, his first instrument is bluegrass banjo, and he's acknowledged as you know one of the top players this side of the Atlantic in the UK. So on mandolinquence gigs, although we emphatically do not do bluegrass, there's just one point in the in the concert where we let Richard rip on the banjo, and uh, he and I do a little fiddle and mandolin. Uh, ban- sorry, banjo and fiddle duet. Yeah, I heard uh, or I saw a YouTube video. You guys playing Little Rabbit. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and, and it, yeah. It, when I heard you playing the fiddle, it reminded me of John Hartford for some reason. I I don't know why because you were playing alone for a time and then it would go to him back and forth. Yeah. And I remember standing there watching John Hartford standing on stage alone with a fiddle and the kind of things you were doing. I also hear a lot of Texas. I I heard another tune called, you had a song on there called the taxi horn rag. And I thought, man, that sounds like it came straight out of one of those Texas fiddle contests. Very cool. That's, that's a cool tune. My um, the, my my fiddle playing, um, well, in in the early days was also influenced by this this guy Dave Swarbrick that I was talking about earlier, um, but I I really did get into American fiddle styles. Now the name John Hartford is familiar to me, but I I don't um, only the name really. I don't really know anything about his playing style. Well, that um, that and may... I've, I've never I've never listened to him very closely, but. The biggest influence on my fiddle playing, certainly the kind of American style side of it, is um, Richard Green. Right, right. Well, he, I'm sure he bumped around with John Hartford a little. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, and you know, everybody's picking up things from from everybody else. It just illustrates a point that that this big pond between us 
you know, stuff crosses back and forth all the time. And even sure, without yeah. your knowledge, I'm sure I, one time I was trying to transcribe all the mandolin solos off the Skaggs and Rice, Ricky Skaggs and Tony Rice duet record that they did just That's for sad. my own, you know, try to help me. And as yeah. I was transcribing this stuff, I was real, I realized that a lot of these licks I already play. This is, I'm transcribing my own style and I, I must've just started Absorbed playing it, yeah. that way because I listened yeah. to a lot of old Boone Creek records or something. Yeah. And of course the genius of a player like Ricky Skaggs is not just the licks, but the way he puts them together and um, just the way he phrases stuff. And I, I mean, I mean, he, I'm sure he has a vast repertoire of licks, but but the mark of a really great player like Ricky Skaggs is that he can. Um, you don't think you're listening to licks when you listen to him, do you? Yeah, that's right. He does have ways of twisting and turning yeah. things in, yeah. in all kind of neat ways. But what I what I got out of that, that attempt at transcribing was that it was easy to transcribe because I noticed when I was hearing it, I was like, "Well, I I play that sometimes. Yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I notice I do that." I don't do it as well as he does. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, this is really great for you to do this. I, I'm sure that uh, Scott Tishner over at Manlin Cafe will will plug this okay, strongly yeah. on his site. Yeah. But, I think I've I've got a photograph somewhere of um, I can't remember on which trip to the states it was, but um, oh, was it the Classical Mandolin Society of America? There's a there's there's me Scott. Butch Baldessari and a couple of other people in yeah. jamming in jamming in a hotel room. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it it was the CMSA convention one year, I think. Yeah, that's a. I I went to a CMSA. Well, they had it in Atlanta one year. Yeah, if my memory serves me, and I remember, I remember uh, Chris Thiele being there. Oh yeah, and I I stood there in the hallway. The or our orchestra was playing, so we were all milling around, and he was sitting on the floor in the hallway at, in the back. And I'm just walking by, and I notice it's him. And I stand there about three feet away from him and listen to him. He's warming up and stuff. And I, the thing I came away with, I had to really, really, really listen. He was playing so softly. And then he got up on stage to do his, his performance, and there was a chair and a microphone. He walked on all by himself and proceeded to play. And I, I stood at the back, and I I didn't know whether to go home and just burn my mandolin. It just made me want to just completely quit because I thought I, I've heard it all. And, and I had a similar experience with you. And, and whenever you go around and listen to great players, sometimes it can inspire you. And sometimes it can make you just think, well, what's the point? You know, it's our, it's all been done. Well, I think, I think the fact is Bradley, that no matter how good you are, and, uh, you know, we all kind of reach our plateau, don't we? <laughs> yeah. But no matter how good you are, there is always somebody out there who can do something you can't. Right. And I, I try to console myself by thinking, I'm sure the great players, Steely and Grissman and Simon Mayer, they feel frustrated that there's something they can't reach, you know. I I, I hope that's yeah, I think, true. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, it's part of being a musician, isn't it? I mean, there's always... There's always something you can't do that you would like to do. Yeah, um, it's uh, I I have a kind of a little uh, side hobby of of flint napping, and it's making arrowheads out of flint. And and the thing I learned from chipping 
a thousand arrowheads is that no matter what you do, it you could always make one a little better, you know. Mm, and it's yeah. just like music; you could everything yeah. can always be slightly improved on. On the other hand, um, for all the pain that it takes when you first start to learn an instrument when you're a child, um, I mean when when you reach the stage, uh, I think there's a there's a point in both my mandolin playing career and my fiddle playing career where I reached a point where I thought, yeah, I'm actually making a nice sound now. I'm actually yeah. pulling a really nice sound out of the instrument. And the, 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 the satisfaction that you get when that happens is something that non-musicians will never experience. And I think we, we as musicians treasure that, don't we, that moment. I know I did. Yeah, when and, I, when, and it's when very I, when fleeting. I, yeah, and then you then you then you're into the next level, aren't you? I, re- I remember with me it was when I first got a good quality mandolin when I when I got my first Vanden, because prior to that I'd just been playing pretty cheap uh, factory instrument, and I never went through the stage of of playing a, what you would call a, a middle market mandolin. Um, I went straight from playing a fairly cheap factory instrument to um, to a handmade one. And the difference was just absolutely enormous. Yeah, and I think... And, uh, uh, go, at, go ahead. At, well, I was going to say that at the same time, I, I, I switched from round back to flat back. And I, I, I realised that for the style that I was evolving into, as much as I loved playing classical music on the mandolin, that that a carved instrument was going to be more versatile for me. And although there was a bit of a no-no in classical music circles about playing classical music right. on anything other than an Italian-style round back, um, I, I decided to ignore that, and I have done ever since. And I've, I've, I've done lots of... I've recorded lots of classical music on the mandolin now and always used um, this... Vanden, basically it's an A5, you know, it's teardrop shape, carved F-holes. Yeah. And, um, and the, but, but when I first switched to it, it was, it was just such a shock. Yeah, I, I had the same experience when I went from playing the, the several cheap mandolins that I had, and then I played one that I built, and then I, I got a uh, Steve Carlson 1985 flat iron F5. And right. uh, everything changed. It was just completely changed. But going back to your point about, um, uh, well, l- l- let me just say this. For me, I, when I reached that, uh, that point of uh, not really frustration, but thinking maybe I've gone as far as I can go musically, I really found that for me, the entertaining side of it, the being on stage and having good arrangements and telling good jokes and things like I, I really got mo- the most out of performing by trying to see the audience react and have a good time. And, and so I, as time went on, when I started, I wanted to be a great mandolin player. But as I went on, I realized that most people don't really, they wouldn't know the difference between me and Chris Thiele, the average audience. And so yeah. I quit playing for the players, and I started just playing for the people and working on my my jokes and poems. Which brings up a point. Uh, there's a your, if you don't mind, would you tell the parrot joke? 
I told my son that joke <laughs> last night. I told my son last night, and, and I was doing the countdown. But anyway, would you mind telling did the I, parrot joke? Did I tell the parrot joke when I was in Atlanta? I, I don't remember. I, You've just, there's, you just said- it's possible. I, I found it on your website <laughs> the last <laughs> night when I was looking, but you, you might have. I know I've had jokes that I've used for 25 years. Yeah, well, this I've I've been using this this one a long time. Um, okay, well, I hope anyone who listens to this podcast is going to understand it. But here goes. It's very short. Uh, there are two parrots sitting on a perch, and one says to the other, "Can you smell fish?" <laughs> As the silence. Did I? Did I? <laughs> I don't. I don't even explain it. I think that's oh, great. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to explain it, but um, <laughs> I don't know whether you know the um, story that followed on from that. I can't recall. Go ahead. Well, we, we had a, a plumber in the house doing some work for us, and um, we, I got on with him really well, and we, whenever he was in the house, we were always telling each other terrible jokes. And I told him that joke one day, and uh, he got it straight away. And he said, um, he said, here, that's a good joke, but a little bit of advice for you. <laughs> next, next time you tells it, people might understand it a little bit easier if you said there was two parrots sitting on a haddock and one said to the other, can you smell fish? Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, Simon, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast uh, i'm sh- absolutely certain that our the podcast audience at grass talk radio is going to enjoy this and i i think you represent the, you know an individual that or the idea that we should sometimes get out of our little circle and look out there and see explore some of the overlapping circles i, I just want to thank you and and i also want to thank the the gods of the internet who have successfully <laughs> yeah, allowed sure. us to talk and we haven't dropped off line it's been absolutely wonderful and i just want to say thank you for myself and and on behalf of the audience well uh, the the technology has certainly worked for us this time hasn't it and it's been it, it's been a huge pleasure bradley thank you very much for inviting me well, well thanks a lot and maybe we'll do this again one of these days yeah we'd love to love to bye for now I hope everybody enjoyed this interview. You know, I talked about those overlapping circles, and there are a lot of overlaps between what he's doing and what, you know, the average bluegrass musician is doing over here and also around the world. Anyway, if you want to know more about Simon, you can go to the show notes page, go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode and click that, and you'll be on the show notes for this episode, and I'll post some links to some of Simon's uh, his website some of his performance and instructional material and stuff like that so anyway have fun I hope you enjoyed it and I'll talk to you in the next episode <laughs>